Hello and welcome to this week in the Retro Hour. Hello. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. The MSX is back. Affordable accessible controller. 8-bit do. Chuck that old Amiga in the bin. All this and more coming up on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. Hello, gents. Another show and a very familiar face joins us today. It's Ravi from the Retro Hour. Hello, Ravi. Hey, how are you doing? Honoured to be on this podcast. Yeah, it's, it's a crossover it now, episode. Ravi, you need it. <laughs> <laughs> the other way around, surely. Um, I mean, we're up to episode 82 here. You've been doing the Retro Hour for a long time. How many episodes are you up to now? Oh, I think we're like 337. Wow. Um, yeah, I've been doing it for six years, and it's pretty crazy. If you've not heard of the Retro Hour, we do similar to this show, so we do news, but not as much detail as you guys. We we steam through the news early on, and then we do an interview every single yeah. week. And can, uh, Yeah, you have a guest, and that's and, a lot um, of effort. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there won't be anyone listening to this who hasn't heard of the Retro Hour. I mean, you're, you're a big inspiration to us, guys, and um, you know a lot of people mm-hmm. will listen to you too. But over 370 episodes, each with a guest. Now, that must be tricky to get a guest for everyone. Yeah, it is tricky. And uh, sometimes we're not that organized and it's like waiting the next day. Sometimes we're like <laughs> five guests ahead. So, you know, yeah, we've we've got used to it now. Yeah, but you've always got someone. Hey, you, we were chatting before the show about uh, prepping for the guests and the interview and things like that. Who does all the research? Because they're usually very well-researched questions that you have for your guests. It usually depends who gets the guest. Right. So whoever gets the guest, but also the kind of specialist subjects. So Dan will um, be very computery and I'm computery. Joe's very console-y. So if we have a more console-based guest, we'll get me and Joe to do it. And then we do a combo with the questions, but it does take a lot of research. Yeah. And uh, the obligatory, who's your favorite guest question, Ravi? I I was thinking about that and I was thinking, you know, we've had some really big names on, but for me, it was uh, Lee Felsenstein and he was the president of the Homebrew Computer Club. And that was kind of where it all started, you know, where they first showed the Mac and uh, Bill Gates did his first letter about software piracy, you know, a, a legendary space. And he also created the Osborne One. So that was a really interesting interview. Wow, it's like talking to Jesus <laughs> all the way back, isn't it? That's incredible, right at the origins of it all. Um, brilliant. And is there anyone coming up that you can tease us with, or is it a top secret who your guests are? This week, uh, we've got Crazy Ken coming off. Uh, Crazy from, Ken? From Computer Clan. Um, oh, okay. who's, who's very into the Max. We've started doing a bit of focus on the Macs because we haven't talked about Apple and stuff for a long time. So Yeah, yeah. Well, I shall look forward to that and um, looking forward to the rest of the show with you, Ravi. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Chris, you've been busy this week, haven't you? What have you got to tell us about? I have, but I need to start off by saying if I if I lose my words, I can't get my words out properly today, there's a good reason. It'll be because reality suddenly hit me that I'm involved in a podcast with Neil and Ravi. <laughs> like, how, how the hell did this happen? But yes, um, well, not just this week, Neil. I have, I've been busy over the last six months or so. Some of that was procrastination. But this is the game for Rich. This is, in fact, his very copy. 
So the game I've been Tell working us the background on to this. in shoot 'em up construction kit. So I did a Christmas giveaway on my channel and came up with this stupid idea. I've been playing about in shoot 'em up construction kit, and I said, right, the prize this year because I didn't have anything else to give away is I will finish making a game and you'll win this game. And just to make it because it is rubbish, and I did promise that it will be a rubbish game because it's made in shoot 'em up construction kit, so your options are limited. But just to make it that little bit special, there's only two copies of this game in existence. This one that I'm holding for Rich, and obviously I've kept a copy for myself. And they're actually slightly different, so they're actually completely individual. There's one sprite Ooh. that appears in Rich's version that doesn't appear <laughs> in in my version. So I can't really show nice. you much more than the front because I want Rich to see it first. There's some of my humor on the back, including screenshots. Um, we won't yeah. spoil the surprise for Rich. Yeah, but, um, so that's, we're, that's for Rich looking to forward to um, looking forward to that being water graded, so we can hear what it's worth. I think. Um, I <laughs> Dave, how's your week been? Um, it's been a funny week for me. Um, last week we talked about hoarding, and after we recorded the show, but before it was broadcast, I was I was contacted out of the blue by, by someone from Kazakhstan, a guy who goes online named Happy Coder. He actually does um, Twitch streams on uh, Twitch streams on coding in his spectrum. Uh, several years ago, he'd asked a friend to look after a load of stuff and his friend was no longer able to. So he offered me a couple of boxes of things that like leads in PSU and, uh, and peripherals and so on to see if I could find my good home. And eventually it turned out to, into me looking after a whole lot more than that. So I made a trip to a foreign country, unfamiliar and scary, much different than South Scotland. Of the border. That's right. <laughs> I went to England <laughs> and I ended up with me picking up the majority of his collection, including loads of micros. I've not even had a chance to look through them. My, my car is entirely full. So is he a hoarder? My car's entirely full. So maybe, maybe he is. So I need to sort through all that and then work out what what's what going to happen to it and store it, etc. Um, so that was just yeah that, that that was um a seven hour round trip yesterday and um there's loads of it so there, there, there's yeah, maybe, maybe you're becoming maybe you're becoming a hoarder an even worse hoarder. <laughs> maybe maybe <laughs> well hopefully you can um send some of those pictures to uh duncan to pop up on the screen of the state of your car because i've seen it and you weren't expecting that were you i no. mean you were just going for a few things yeah. and there was barely room for you in the car yeah yeah absolutely full yeah. full of boxes nice. and then full of loose stuff on top of the boxes still in the car now or has it been empty it's still in the car i'm not gonna I, I, can't, I can't empty it until i've got somewhere to put it that doesn't end up mixed in with all my stuff um yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay well we'll look forward to hearing what you've got when you finally get through to sifting through it all let's get into this week's stories and uh see what news we've got our first story was submitted to the subreddit by user uh, Pitiful Advanced 2250 It's all about the MSX computer. The MSX is back, and this is a really cool story because it's not a mini for once. It's not an ornament to put on your shelf. It is a legit new MSX platform, the MSX3. And we can call it legit because it's been developed by one of the original creators of the MSX. To give you a bit of background, the MSX was an 8-bit platform in the 80s. It was available in our shores, but it was most popular in Japan where it was developed. We didn't see many of them over here. Um, did any of you guys see an MSX? Just nah. a quick yes or no? 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 no. Back in the day? No. I don't remember seeing one either. I, I perhaps saw some games on the shelves, but didn't see a system. Um, it was most popular in Japan, and um, it came about because there was a joint drive by Microsoft and ASCII Corporation to try and standardize the home computer market. It wasn't them making a computer as such. It was them laying out a standard so that other 
people could make that and the software would be compatible across all of those computers. And, you know, of course, Microsoft wanted to um, capitalize on that by making the software for those computers. It was to be the VHS player of computing. Manufacturers such as Philips, Sony, Toshiba, Mitsubishi, and Sanyo made the machines which first appeared in 1983, and then we would see an MSX2 which would build on the platform in 86, and there would also be the MSX2 Plus, and another one, a very desirable one for collectors because it's pretty rare, called the MSX Turbo R. That's actually a risk-based one, and I saw one on eBay this week for... Uh, I think it's about £1,200 is one currently listed for. So we're going into very expensive collector's territory for that one. With over 7 million MSXs sold, Dave, you're frowning there. Have I said something that's upset you? Just the cost quite of a it. frown. One thousand. Cost of- <laughs> <laughs> it's just like very intent. I thought, what have I said? Well, how have I upset Dave? He did say rare. Um, <laughs> he's got three in his Real car vintage. right now. <laughs> There are over 7 million MSXs sold, so it is remembered very fondly in Japan. And there have been several attempts to revive it over the years, ranging from an official emulator in 2001. There was a Raspberry Pi-based system called the MSX VR in 2020, which is effectively a really, really nice-looking case, but it's a pie on the inside. But in this latest announcement, it's really notable because it comes from the original co-creator, Kazuhiko Nishi. I'm sorry if I've butchered your name, but it's something like that. The MSX3 started life as an expansion board for existing MSX computers, but it is now a standalone device. It'll have an ARM processor. The original had a Z80, but the later Turbo R did have a RISC CPU, so it's it's in keeping in some way. And we expect something called a Pro and a Lite version, as well as a cartridge. So they are going to um, honor their original pledge to make it a, an add-on for existing MSXs, but you'll also be able to get it as a standalone thing. So it's pretty incredible to think that nearly four decades after the original, a new MSX with direct links to the development of the original is in the works. Ravi, let's go to you first. Um, I know you said you didn't see one back in the day, but have you ever even tinkered with an MSX? Given uh, I've only managed to play with an MSX that shows. And... Um... It's it's a real alien world to me because there's so many systems and so many manufacturers that did them. It's it's like a standard light CDI or 3DO. I don't know which one to go for. Yeah. <laughs> and there's so many choices. But um, we did one interview with a guy called uh, Wamis Wickop, and he, he was basically in the Dutch scene. He wrote for the MSX magazine. And um, because Philips were based in the Netherlands, there was a, a kind of Dutch scene that was created outside of Japan. And also there was a shipment of MSXs that was meant to go to UK and then got diverted. So all the Dutch importers and exporters ended up getting them and selling them cheap. So there's like a, a little enclave of MSX users in the Netherlands and uh, a little scene there. And if you want to get like, english-speaking guests and stuff with msx the dutch scene's a good little place to look at that's good to know yeah Yeah. there's there's a good scene in general in holland uh, in in retro um i mean the champion the the king of retro in holland of course is our friend castardo in in discord who who actually came over to visit the cave the other day made the trip over um just to visit the cave so uh i'm sure he's got lots to tell us about msx's as well um Dave, what about you? Well, I knew nothing about the MSX back in the day, just like you, Neil. I saw a small amount of cassettes and the big rows of Amstrad and Specky games. 
And it turns out most of them were specy ports, lazy specy ports. So the MSX games we we made in the UK weren't too good. But it does turn out there's some great games on it too. Um, there is a scene for MSX. There is some good games to play. There's some stuff to discover. Uh, and I, I do like the idea of the, the MSX concept. So uh, several manufacturers can make it as long as it meets a certain hardware spec. And although it's not how IBM PCs were intended to be, it's how we it's where we ended up with them accidentally when you went everybody could build a, a PC compatible. Um, is this then, Neil, is this the MSX version of the Spectrum Next then? Is that where this is? I guess it is really, isn't it? Because, um, it, you know, it's not it's not going to be powered by a Z80. They say it's backwards compatible, but of course that's going to involve an emulation layer to make that happen. Um, yeah, I guess you could call it that the I mean, the MSX, the MS Next. Is it <laughs> That's gonna, the name is, they should have end up kind of creating this new kind of wave of people making software for this new platform the same way the Next did. I, I hope that's the case. I hope so too, because that's the ultimate goal of any of these projects, isn't it? To re-stimulate the development side of things, and you know, it's great being backwards compatible. But you know, if people want to go back and visit. Metal Gear Solid, and I can't believe nobody's mentioned Metal Gear Solid yet, which mm. <laughs> started out on the MSX. We can so easily fire up an emulator, or even, you know, there are consoles with, with um, MSX games in the, you know, virtual emulation stores where you can just pick it up very cheaply these days. So um, I think development, stimulating uh, new people to develop or old people. Uh, who want to start developing for these systems is a huge part of it. And I think that's what was so good about the Next, the ZX Spectrum Next. They really pushed that um, all the way up from um, the manual, which has all of those coding examples, um, to the online community. Yeah, Ravi. Uh, yeah, I also guess it's having new hardware is mm -hmm. going to be kind of useful, especially when you've got lots of old ones out there and you have to kind of maintain them. Yeah, new reliable hardware is nice. Yeah, and and the and the modern development tools that go with it and everything like that. Yeah, um, I hope it does well. Um, I mean, some of the MSXs I have in the cave include the Yamaha CX5M, which is a, a music-based um, one aimed at, aimed at um, musicians. So it had a MIDI keyboard that you plugged in, and it had an FM synth chip, which wasn't standard to the MSX. So you could get some really good noises out of it. And this was a slight problem with the MSXs. There was a standard, but a lot of these developers wavered from the standard. <laughs> um, I'm not sure how badly any of them broke compatibility, but they certainly added things that weren't universally supported. Uh, so for in, in the example of the Yamaha 65M, unless you were making music with it, I don't think there was much software that would even be aware of that FM chip being in there. So it was a little bit wasted on you. Games-wise, I've not really explored it much, but, you know, I should, and I, I have begun to, and I'm doing that through the Mister. You know, it's perfectly emulated on there, so um, that's how I'm going to explore the library, but I will keep an eye out for this. Uh, Chris, we haven't heard your view yet. Are you, are you familiar at all with the MSX? No, not at all, and I don't even remember games being on the shelves, to be honest, but I do no. like projects like this. Uh, you know, it gives me hope for maybe other systems that will follow in the same trend. We've talked about the Spectrum Next already. On the Amiga front, I mean, you had the PowerPC-based Amigas in the form of the offerings from Aeon, so, you know, why not an ARM-based modern Amiga? And when I say ARM-based, I'm thinking more like the Mac M1, you know, let's go full grunt, um, or, you know, why not an Atari ST with a, an ARM-based processor? Um, and when you think about it, Atari 
kind of nearly did that when they created the the modern VCS, um, which was an AM, AMD based CPU. So essentially, you could use it as a PC. So that's what that's what I kind of think about when I look at projects like this. Chris, you've done the incredible. You've managed to bring the Amiga into an MSX story. (laughs) (laughs) And the Atari ST. (laughs) Yeah, you got the Atari ST in there as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Ravi, you've done a lot of videos and research on all the different ways that you can use an Amiga and all the different models and things that are out there. You did did a video recently, didn't you? Tell us about that. Yeah, it it was every option of kind of a system that you can buy like hardware that can run well, that was a good video i watched that yeah yeah i watched that yeah god a lot of research went into that but um yeah. i know you're mentioning there that amiga went to power pc that was kind of like a, a stopgap. Uh, initially the plans of commodore were to go for arm and risk mm. um and that's what dave haney were was going to do and all the developers so actually if they had done that back then they'd probably be in a really good position nowadays for yeah hindsight you know <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And um I don't know actually what the demise ultimately of the MSX was. I mean it obviously did well to go to an MSX2 and get that Turbo R. But, um I think it was just superseded by other systems. You know, it sold enough in Japan, just didn't keep up, I guess. Something I should look into at some point. Anyway, if you're interested in the MSX3, then uh check out the links in the show notes. It it has of course it's it's been announced that they're hoping to release it later this year whether that slips or not i don't know but it looks like they're well into development and there is some good mock-ups as well as real images of the prototype that's out there that they're working on so i'm sure it won't be the last time that you hear about it on the show well as i've mentioned several times before i've had to be very aware of accessibility standards to a fairly high degree in some of the previous roles that i've held Um, and it's one of those topics that kind of sticks with you once you've sort of been involved in it Um, Because what you often come to realize is um, if something is designed with accessibility in mind, it actually benefits everyone. So one of my favorite examples is an elevator, you know, in a multi-story building. Of course, it helps people with mobility issues, but everybody will get in an elevator or a lift, you know, to go up to the next floor. So we all benefit. a um, an accessibility ramp is a, another example sliding doors you know automatic sliding doors great for accessibility fantastic for everyone we all benefit so oddly when i used to deliver workshops on the topic um or even just apply some of the standards that i had to be aware of to projects i was working on i would then you know go home at the end of the day same as with any other job and sit down for a session on my ps3 or later the ps4 and in the back of my mind especially if i'd just done a workshop would be this thought what about gaming? You know, how is that accessible? And how is that even exempt from accessibility standards? Because I don't, I don't think anything really is. So I guess um, seeing a story like this one brought to us by Paul, aka Hermsky, um, really sort of brings that to the fore. So Paul basically drops a link to a story on androidpolice.com by Ryan Whitwem about a new controller by 8BitDo. Um, and it's been basically been built from the ground up with accessibility in mind. The controller is called the Lite SE and costs only $35. US uh, And the concept was basically, basically presented to them by a guy called Andreas Carlson. Um, and Andreas's son, Oscar, has a muscular disorder. So Andreas cobbled together some controllers to try and make gaming more accessible for his son, basically, and then approached 8BitDo, who listened and looked at his concepts, and came up with the Lite SE. 
the final result is basically a Bluetooth controller, and it's got a flat rubberized base so that it sits flat uh, on you know a, a hard surface and doesn't move around. All of the buttons are on the face of the board, including those that would traditionally be trigger buttons on the top, and the thumbsticks aren't clickable. So, but instead, there's additional buttons to act as thumbstick clicks, and the buttons have a lot less resistance than other controllers as well. Other than that, when you look at this controller, if no one mentioned that this was built with accessibility in mind, I'd just assume it was another controller and one that potentially I'd even consider buying as it actually takes away some of the things that annoy me about modern controllers. What do you guys think? Well, I'm glad you described it to me because I was looking at it and thinking, oh, it just looks like a, a normal controller. What, what's the accessibility angle about this? Um, yeah, yeah. But that, that's a nice thing that it looks like a normal controller. And it's also nice to see a company producing something that isn't simply about selling as many units as possible for as much profit as possible. You know, they they know, we know there will be a limited market for this. But for those that do want it, they will be so appreciative of it, of it existing. And we, we should applaud 8BitD for doing that all based on the assumption that it is a good joypad and not absolute <laughs> garbage. <laughs> um, it, it's uh, it's also not the only new controller announced this week, but I won't derail the story. You can ask me about that a bit later when we've explored this. In terms of its usability, um, I, I'm not really positioned to tell you. Uh, as I said, at a glance, I thought it looked pretty normal. I'm not in a position to tell you if this thing's well-designed, but it's really down to the simple question of to those who want it, find it a lot better for gaming um the, the proof will be in the pudding and i'm pretty sure a huge amount of research will have gone into this research play testing um and everything before it's even got to this stage of being public knowledge so i'm sure it's very well designed the example given on the website because you said this is a bluetooth uh, controller is the controller sat in front of a nintendo switch um, so it's connected by Bluetooth. So, you know, this isn't purely a retro story, but being Bluetooth, you'll be able to pair that with your Raspberry Pi, with your Mister, with a Bluetooth dongle, with your PC and your emulators. So it will cater to the retro market as well. And as you say, it's got this rubberized um, underside. So it's shown on a table in front of a switch. So obviously it can't slip around. Yeah, it looks like it seems to tick all the boxes, doesn't it? Um, Ravi, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, really interesting. Like accessibility-wise, when I first started in my like microcomputers and stuff like that, there was a a big aspect of accessibility, like um, trackables, um, oh, yeah. screen readers with the voice synthesis and stuff. Mm. Um, and I don't know if either I'm missing it nowadays or it's a hidden feature or stuff, but I don't tend to see that much stuff available for it now like in the ipads and stuff you see built-in accessibility options and screen readers and stuff but modern consoles i haven't seen much um i have seen the adaptive controllers on the xbox which mm -hmm. are really nice devices where um it's around 80 pounds and you can plug in different devices for for, right. for different uses so you can have pedals switches uh even blow stuff you know small little thumb controllers and stuff but the thing i like about this is it's cheap it looks like a normal controller you know you can just put it down and yeah it looks retro as well which is pretty cool so i can imagine if you're emulating something you're gonna feel a lot better playing a little retro controller hmm. 
Yeah. There's a um, there's there's a charity in the UK called Special Effect who do a lot of work um, helping to make games accessible for people. So Eight um, Bit Two, if anyone's listening, send Special Effect a ton of these joy pads, please get them into their hands. Um, yeah, Chris, yeah. how about you? What are your thoughts? Yeah, no, on on the modern gaming side, I, I am aware some games, and again, it's when you're looking for something like this, then you do kind of see it everywhere, and a lot of them do at least have um, color blindness options, so you can tinker with the contrast mm-hmm. and stuff like that um, beyond you know the normal settings. But other than that, I think you're right, Ravi, you don't really see it that often. Um, in terms of this controller, though, as we've already discussed, you know, compatible with the Pi, Android, and Switch is what they actually state on the website, but. Yeah, probably other systems because it's basically a Bluetooth controller. For me, though, you know, going back to the example of things that just benefit us all, one of the things I hate in most games is having to push in the thumbsticks. So usually it's for oh, yeah. run in an FPS. So mm. I don't know how that would work. Maybe I need more fingers, but to actually have a separate button for run would just be fantastic. So I don't know. Use the keyboard. Be keen to give one of these a go. Use the keyboard. Well, yes, if you're doing PC, absolutely. But what this kind of makes me think well, that, that, about—that's the point. That might that that might not be an option. Yeah. Use the keyboard. I know it's said in jest, but yeah, you yeah, know, true. There are people that are going to appreciate this so much. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Um, and what it makes me think about as well is, I guess, games have become a lot more complicated and thus have the controllers. Mm-hmm. And if you look back, I mean, I've got, you know, three joysticks right here next to me um, because they're always here. These aren't place props. They're just always here, you know. And something like this, I mean, that's quite easy to use. And that's what we were used to back in the day. So maybe just, uh, we'll just for the audio of... listeners, what, what oh, were yeah, you holding sorry. up there, Chris? That was a quick <laughs> shot too. So, but, you know, quick essentially it's, it sticks to the desk because it's got rubber pads on the bottom. And it's a big stick that you can grab, and it has one fire button that you need to click at the top. Um, and so it's a fairly simple device, I think, probably for most people to use. And when you look at a lot of the the modern designs for accessible accessibility controllers, they seem to hark back to the retro controllers that we're used to. Does that make sense? So mm. no, 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 it's an interesting mm. space. And, and I guess there's going to be a way to remap this as well. So maybe you'll be mm. able to remap it to the yeah. buttons that you're using most. That would be a useful feature, I would have thought. Yeah, Dave, how about you? Do yeah. you have sticky keys? Well, um, <laughs> um, the the important thing for me is a standard Bluetooth controller. So there's no battles to fight to get other devices to support it. If they support Bluetooth, they'll support this. I I, I know how bad at times modern gaming is for keeping up with patches and all the rest of it. So expecting them to have proper accessibility support. I would imagine that it'll be delayed at times. It won't be in there at launch and all the rest of it. So this, if this works the way it looks, it works. And if it's well made, if it's if it's a good controller, then this will solve a lot of problems without having to to get it on the software side. If it's on the hardware side, and I've got a couple of eight bit do controllers for my multi system, and they're great. I've got the the kind of the kidney shaped ones that are from the that look like the Sega Mega Drive ones, I think. Um, is it Sega Mega Drive or is it the Master System? I don't know the difference. Um, the Master System was a, a just a rectangle, right? It's, 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 yeah, yeah. Mega Drive then the Genesis if yeah. you're if you're uh, geographically challenged, uh, and they're great. They feel good <laughs> in your hand. The buttons are just right, and they're they're really inexpensive. They're about the price of this, uh, and I'd really, I really they they're just really well made. So I'm assuming if this is as well made as the the ones I bought, then it'll be great. Uh, the only complaint I had about 8-bit do is that the, the naming and model numbers aren't very obvious and they look as if it's the same thing and if you, if you buy the wrong one you might be stuffed um, 
and buying them wasn't quite as easy as I'd like for a mass market device. It was weird name people on eBay selling them, and that was apparently the official way. Uh, and they're also really low latency as well, so you're not getting lag on them. So, I, I, yeah, this this is, sounds great to me. And then yeah, they say um, they've increased the sensitivity, uh, basically, for the controller. So if your motor so, skills aren't mm. quite as good, you can still get it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. Now, I know on some of the 8-bit do pads, you can hold down buttons to change kind of the way they operate for different systems. So uh, I, if there's not a software option, maybe there'll be hardware options where you can mm. hold down buttons to change the sensitivity to suit, perhaps. I don't know. That would be useful as well, I would imagine. Let's just redesign the whole product on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Let's make up features and say they're definitely in there. Yeah, oh. definitely. Now, Neil, you mentioned another controller. What was that? I did. Um, there's this stick called the Unithor, and I'm only mentioning it because they've got a, an active Kickstarter campaign right now. So um, it might be worth a look at to, to get your chance to pick one up if you want one. It's 25 days, probably no, 23 days left now on the Kickstarter. It's very close to hitting their £55,000 target, so it looks like this thing's going to exist. And all it is basically is a very solid D9 or USB digital flight stick in the style of the one that Chris held up, the uh, the Quick Joy, just a moment ago. And it is very solid. I, I can say that because they sent me a prototype. I haven't done a video on it or, you know, I'm not being paid to promote it or anything like that. Uh, they just wanted my feedback on it. And yeah, it's an incredibly solid flight stick. What have you picked up there, Dave, to show so us? This is something. an arcade R. Um, oh, yes, is, I know those. I keep thinking when I see that Unithor, I keep thinking about this because the two aren't the same at all. But to me, mm. this is a modern remake of the Zipsticker Competition Pro. I think it's closer to the Competition Pro because of the buttons. And the Unithor looks like a modern remake of the, the Rotten Quickshot and Cheetah joysticks that were, <laughs> no offence, Chris, but I, I didn't find they were well made, most of them. Maybe that one's got micro switch. Oh, no, you're 100% right. You're 100% right. But if you're a flight um, sim fan, this is what you wanted to be holding because it yeah, just felt wrong yeah. to have an arcade-style stick. Um, but no, these are, these are rubbish. These are absolute yeah. rubbish. Yeah, and and well, then they got the micro switches. The micro switches would always snap the springs, so it didn't get any better. Anyway, carry on. Yeah. In the case of the Unithor, I, I think what I would say from having used the prototype is it's as good as a digital flight stick gets. Yeah. Whether you whether you actually want a digital flight stick is another story because, like Dave, I'm very much more into the arcade-style sticks and an analog flight stick if I want to play a flight sim. Uh, but it's out there. Go and check it out. It's called the Unithor, and um, take a look while you've got the chance to get get hold of one now nah, it does look good um they're customizable aren't they neil D is there an option to put a fire button on the base that's the only question i have uh, before we move there on. is actually yeah there are some yes, options to in. put <laughs> led lights and fire buttons on the base and even four little buttons on the base in the style of the stick that came with the c64 mini and the maxi i don't know if you remember that it had yeah. buttons so you could alter the menu options so yeah there are lots of options there. Oh, i'll take a is it digital only then. yes yeah yeah, okay. yeah. But so are a lot of the flight sims from that era, which is shouldn't have been the case, but it just was. Back onto this um, 8-bit do um, controller. There's no way we're actually suggesting that there hasn't been work in this area, and as Ravi's already mentioned, some of the offerings for the Xbox. Uh, it's a very niche market, so that does drive up the prices. Um, and the adaptive Xbox controller is one that I looked at whilst researching this story. Looks like a sort of large tabletop device, really, with oversized controls and um, interfaces for more specialized devices to be plugged into. From my research, unless the prices have changed, it was 100, 
$30 US, uh, the example that I looked at, but so it might not have been the exact one you were talking about, Ravi. Uh, but yeah, we'll put all the I think in the there, there might be different ones. Yeah, there yeah. might be different ones. This this almost looked like a big DJ mixing desk, actually, the one that I was looking at, and then it had ports to and, plug. And you plug it into the individual um, yeah. sections at the back as well. So like yeah. it will have the output for the shoulder button, and then you can change that to a certain device. Yeah. On the 8 bit do one, is there a, a retail price announced yet for it, Chris? Um, yes, uh, I think I mentioned that earlier, but I'll just... Um, oh, sorry, ahead. I was drifting off. <laughs> 35 US. We're keeping you awake. 35 US, that's very good, actually. Sorry, I was just US. assuming that it would be a smaller run and therefore a higher price for these things, but that sounds very reasonable. That's what makes this very reasonable, yeah, exactly. Um, you've, you've also got Blue Tip Gaming Access 4 Pro, which looks like an oversized arcade stick uh, with additional joysticks. Blue Tip actually has a range of options designed to work for every one and you can actually contact them and tailor a joystick to suit your specific needs which is nice um but um uh, oh those come in at i think it's 550 us uh, sort of well it's a range depending on what options you go for uh, but those are quality joysticks they're actually made using funnily enough genuine sanwa buttons um <laughs> as as they they state on their website in exactly those words um, but and I can see what they've they've gone for with their joysticks. They've really aimed to make something desirable for all gamers, not just those with additional requirements, which is always the best way to go, I think. Um, so there's quite a few options out there. So I'll put a link in the show notes to a list of six devices that I found, and there's plenty more out there. But I found that list on PCMag.com, so we'll include that. But for eight bit do you know to listen and develop a quality low price controller for the market as well? I think that's amazing. So I should apologize to any Amiga fans that I offend during the next segment. Any offense is slightly intentional, but meant in a sense of fun. Um, just put a mini in it. Chuck that old Amiga in the bin. Now, this submission was sparked by a video by Retro Recipes where Christian talks about his frustration with maintaining old hardware and how emulation and FPGA don't suffer the same. In particular, he talks about how badly made his Commodore Amiga 1200 is and how much work he's had to put in to keep his cheaply made Commodore rubbish still running. He talks about how his Amiga may not even be a real Amiga anymore because of the various upgrades it has. It has a vampire, it has RGB to HDMI, it has a GoTech, etc. I can't really agree with him there. I've got the feeling he's been intentionally provocative with probably maybe a specious point that the A500 Mini is the perfect Amiga and we can dump real hardware. What he's done is he's taken the guts from his Amiga 1200 and he's put in the board from the Amiga uh, it's not actually branded Amiga, it's from the A500 Mini, which Chris has got behind him, I think, which he'll point to. Um, so it's a little board, he's put it inside there to give you the, the look and feel of using a, a, an Amiga 1200, but in, a, in actual fact, it, it, it's a, it's a, a, I think it's an ARM-based emulator inside there. Um, now, Neil, is the A500 Mini a complete replacement for all real hardware Amigas, and is it worth stopping using real hardware completely? No. Chris? No. Ravi? <laughs> no. <laughs> There's a, a bit of a point hidden behind the, the clickbaity topic here, and he does touch on it, and he calls it the ship of Theseus, but if you're highly cultured, you'll know it as Trigger's Broom. And it's the idea that every part of the computer can be replaced 
And then it's the question, is it still the same thing? So if you replace the broom handle and the broom head, is it still the same broom? Um, he doesn't seem warm to the idea that it is the same thing. But I disagree. I, I think it is true. I think for the most um, of our micros that we use, you can replace the boards thanks to work from preservation and recreation. Re recreation? Recreation, not recreation. <laughs> Maybe he's a recreation expert as well. Um, recreation. Rob Taylor, he is a recreation expert, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Rob Taylor um, has deconstructed an existing boards, existing old boards, and made brand new ones. So you can buy an Amstrad CPC replica board. You can buy a Commodore 64, an Amiga 500 Plus, and many others. I think, did he announce a BBC one? the other day um I think he did yeah so if the pads fail if the traces are dissolved by varta juice or if it's just so damaged that it's time to go then you can replace the board and you can put all the original components back in and then it's functionally identical and i would say that's still the original um mm. and you can use modern um components you can use modern components with footprint adapters um Anders uh, Groundland has made a, one for the Atari ST to make memory expansions easy, or Kai Robinson made one for the Amiga, so you can use uh, easier-to-find chips um, through a, an adapter board. And going further, there's replacements for the more expensive Commodore ICs like uh, FPGA SIDs and VIC chips. Uh, work on the Mr. Project does dovetail somewhat this, but it means that you can get, hopefully, more... Uh, things analysed and recreated in FPGA so that perhaps eventually we'll be able to get any and all of the custom ICs in our machines replaced. And you can even get replacement cases now. Um, but I feel as a rule of thumb that as long as you replace each part one by one as it fails or as it's necessary to replace it, then it's still an Amiga. But when you take all the internals out and replace them in one go, it's not. Neil, do you agree? And what's your approach going to be in the cave over time as parts fail? Will you just stick a pie in it? Oh, um, yeah, lo lots of interesting points raised there. Um, specifically in the cave, people pay to come to the cave. They buy a ticket. And in doing so, they expect an authentic experience. That's why I'm so determined to keep CRTs running, for example. Um, and, and that extends to the machines as well. That being said, I do have Mr. I have the Mr. Multisystem kiosk with the barcode scanner because that adds um, a, a slightly different and quite unique interactive experience for people. That's more part of the shop display. And anyone who picks up the controller can see it's a modern controller. It's not pretending to be anything that it's not. But um, in, in the museum context, I wouldn't put a pie in any of the machines out on display unless, and I do plan on doing this at some point, it was a modern retro exhibition and clearly labeled as such um, on this video in particular i think as a, as a video maker as a youtuber it's a really fun topic to make a video about and it's achieved one of its goals which is to stimulate conversation and that you know we're right here right now talking about it so it's been successful in that part as for viewers trying this out for themselves my advice would be just wait for an A500 Maxi to come along. Save yourself the effort. You know, it surely will come along and it probably exists, but it would be unwise of Retro Games Limited to mention it right now while they're selling minis. They don't want to put people off. They just want the same people to buy the, the, the next version again once they bought the first one. So I'm in no doubt that the A500, A500 Maxi um, uh, will come along um, at some point. I don't know, maybe this Christmas. Is this the official announcement then? on this podcast <laughs> well I, I, yeah have you got we the prototype 
as the podcast gets more successful, our egos grow and we can we can just take that power. Yeah, I'm I'm announcing it. It's happening. <laughs> um, if I was seriously thinking about putting anything into an Amiga case, it would probably be FPGA based just because the Amiga cores are so mature and such a joy to use. So if you absolutely must do it, just go the whole hog and get something with the mini MIG FPGA core. Um, I've used the boards that Rob made that you mentioned. I created the the ultimate Amiga, I think was the video series where I made a brand new Amiga using all new components except for those custom chips because you can't get those anywhere else. And actually, um, I put it in a Checkmate case, so no, nobody was under the illusion that it was anything but a new Amiga, and it felt exactly like an Amiga. Uh, even, you know, I put a vampire on it eventually, but I did try it out in stock form, and it just felt like it had the heart and soul of the original machine, and I loved it. Um, Chris? Is that essentially what the Amiga is? Correct me if I'm wrong, but that's an FPGA solution, isn't it, for Amiga? Yes. That, yeah. emulates, an a, that emulates an A1200. Because I, I watched that with interest. I've seen quite a few videos. I think it was Doug um, from Tenmark who showed mounting it on the back of a monitor. So essentially you just turn the monitor on and it runs as an A1200. But, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's the, in terms of the ports at the back, it's made to fit in an A500 case rather than an A1200, which I never quite understood. Um, if it was made to fit in an A1200 case without modification, then that would make more sense. And I would certainly be keen for a solution like that, definitely. Ravi, is that one of the devices you looked into recently for your video? Uh, yeah, I think they're releasing a version called the Reloaded, um, oh, okay. which is going to come soon. I think they were doing pre-orders. I'm not quite sure what the differences are, but hmm. I know that was one of the cheaper FPGA solutions yeah. um, for Amiga. You can choose the configuration on it, so you can make it an A500 in an A500 yeah. case um, and then jump up to the 1200 if you want to once in a while. AGE um, goodness. I I guess there's just a, a more ready supply of 500 cases. That's probably why that choice was made. Yeah, yeah. true. Yeah. So going back to what you said, Neil, I'm under no illusions that the machines I have here will last forever. So I think as long as I try to keep them working as best as I can, keep them repaired, um, then I'll be quite happy um, or gentle when we can rebuild them. We have the technology, even if they're... <laughs> end up with so much FPAG that FPGA in them that they're more machine now than man, then I feel that there'll still be real hardware, even if no real part remains. But Ravi, are you a purist? Are you happy to replace some parts like the power supply and the disk drives, or would you go further and consider emulation instead of the two Amiga 600s that you use for your DJ sets? I, I think you've outed me here. Yeah, I am a bit of a purist. <laughs> I've... Uh... I've always, when I'm DJing with them, I, I love to have them as original hardware, no add-ons, because to me, that's the whole kind of point. You know, I'm doing a bit of a novelty thing, which is DJing with old computers from 1993. So having any changes other than a compact flash drive in there, um, it really weirds me out. Even a GoTech, I, I wouldn't feel right with a GoTech. Um, I've, I've, had a vampire and stuff like that and i've not really felt comfortable I, I feel more comfortable with accelerators in there and uh i don't know it's weird i've got a con connection with my old machines so i've i've got this amiga 4000 which uh neil's repaired gadget uk's repaired and <laughs> i've i've put lots of money into there and it's kind of like old car collecting that's the whole point you know you're just gonna turn it into a money pit but keep it going <laughs> and uh, have a lot of fun 
With your Amiga 4000, Ravi, you did have a pretty swish card that you added to it, didn't you? An expansion card. Yeah, yeah, the ZZ9000 one. And that has an ARM chip on it and stuff, but I'm kind of pretending in my head it's just a graphics card. I don't know what it does, but it's a fantastic <laughs> name, ZZ9000. Yeah, really good card. But um, also, I think, like, taking your old machines and hiding them away um, and not using them, to me, they should be used and preserved. So uh, one machine is in Bletchley Park, which is Colossus, which was a machine that was destroyed, and it was a World War II machine that was developed in 1943. And um, that's still working. So I don't see any problem with a 20- or 30-year-old Amigas. But also, um, like, Commodore never really intended these machines to go on for more than yeah. 10 years you know they had a, a very short uh, foresight and um as you know with vata batteries and capacitors that they weren't designed to last long so uh the fact that we're keeping them going I, I see that as part of the collecting and part of the challenge is is uh good fun but i can see how non-technical minded people might uh yeah want to do stuff but then what are you doing playing with amigas <laughs> so what about you chris i'm sure you'll agree that amiga is an unreliable heap of junk and now that you've got your a500 mini are your real amigas now e-waste hang on chris let how me find a... the button to just eject dave from the podcast <laughs> i'm just going to ask how does a scotsman react to a welsh kiss from an englishman that's all i want to know um... <laughs> i thought you were australian no but... no <laughs> no i'm not australian um we just pretend i am but no i mean look i know i know you're kidding and, and you know as yeah. well as i do they're not unreliable and really going back to this story from from perifractive from christian i don't think he believes that either you know he's a youtuber um and he's and he's come up with a topic um but that's the only thing i have an issue with for, from his video and his the points that he brings across i've been very lucky so i've got a, an a500 which i bought a been hardly used by its original owner um seriously you know one careful owner one elderly gent had owned this from the story i'm led to believe and i do believe it because it was squeaky clean inside and out so i've not really had any issues with my a500 and they are reliable rely uh, sorry renowned for being reliable you know there's not a lot you have to do to an a500 i had issues with the keyboard but that was probably through lack of use more than use um, on that particular machine the A1200, again, I've been lucky because I bought one that somebody else had already sunk the money into. So it's already recapped. It's already reconditioned. The only ongoing issue I have is the floppy drive. So I could throw a GoTek in there if I wanted to. So I absolutely love original kit, and that's what I prefer to use. But I'm certainly not adverse to using um, emulation in, in many forms. So, I mean, the, the video, um, Christian's video was about, really, it was about for me, it was about how do you continue into the future to use what looks and feels like an Amiga? You know, if it looks like a quack, duck and quacks like a duck, for the most intensive purposes, it's a duck. And if that's how he wants to do it going forwards, and I think he's really just raising a point rather than saying this is the only way forwards. I don't think he believes his Amiga is about to burst into flames in the next couple of weeks. Um, and it, 
you kind of have to look at this video that, that has been raised here in the context of one of his other videos, which is where he actually shows the build on what he calls the A1200 Maxi, which as you said, is an A500 Mini inside an A1200 case. And it's a customized case. Um, and I love his stuff and I love his style, but I was, I was quite honest with the comment that I put on his YouTube video, which I'll share with you now. I basically said to him, you know, I'm a huge fan, but at the start of this build, I'll confess I was thinking, oh no, oh dear no. But I love the end result. Nice job, well done. It's interesting uh, seeing that the Mini is running as, as an accelerated A1200 uh, with an 030, which is essentially what the A500 Mini runs at. That's the same as my real A1200, with the current value being around 1200 Australian dollars or around 600 pounds. That alone shows you what a bargain the Mini is. And this entire build would be so much cheaper than the real thing. So it'd be interesting to take a build like this to an Amiga meet and see if the hardcore haters can even tell when they're using it. I'd actually love to do that, to be honest. Um, mm -hmm. And we also need to point out, it does come from the build video more than the video we're talking about today, that no A1200s were harmed or even abandoned in the uh, making of this A1200 Maxi. Um, and he actually is very clear in the build video about saying that he's got plans for the components that came out for it, uh, came out of it and he's used a spare case. Yeah, Ravi? Yeah, um, I, I love Christian's channel because this is kind of like something that he does. I remember he did a Brick Bricksty 64, yes. which was a Lego version of the C64. And I thought when the Mini came out, he's going to be the first person to either make a Maxi or get that floppy drive working. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. It's kind of like his area. Yeah, so yeah. I totally understand this video. And uh, he has brought it up, like you said, as a conversational piece rather than uh, you know, a decision on this is the future path. Yeah, that's right. He also did, um, he put a working keyboard into a uh, C64 Mini, didn't he? And built a, um, a two-scale external floppy driver 1541 that you put the sd yeah, card in. fantastic I, lo I love most of his projects they're so good so yeah i mean clearly i love my original kit um but you know one of the projects i've got in mind is actually throwing us so i've got a spare a500 case behind me which i think we pointed out last week that's there because one of the things i've got in mind is putting a, a pc motherboard probably a uh, a laptop motherboard inside of that to do something similar to this project that Christian's done, but with a slightly different slant. Can I make a a fairly decent, I wouldn't say gaming machine, but you know, at least being able to play some modern PC games, but also of course you load it up on emulation. You're using an Amiga. It looks like an Amiga. The keyboard feels like an Amiga. Throw in a USB tank mouse, you know, do you get the same experience? I think it'd be quite a cool project um, to do. But that said, and looking at Christian's um, project as well, to be honest, like Neil's already said, when the A500 Maxi comes out, I'm lazy, yeah. I have limited skills, I just want to go into a shop, pick up the box, and go home and plug it in. That would be fantastic. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think to put in all my, my um, trolling to one side, um, <laughs> I think this really pivots on the starting point. If you're starting from an Amiga 1200 that maybe it doesn't work, maybe it just needs a bit of repair. If you're starting from that and you're taking the guts out and you're putting something in there like a pie or this, I'm not happy with that. 
But if you're starting and you're thinking, well, do I want to go on eBay and find the 1200? Do I want to repair it? Do I want to get a new power supply, a new modern one? Do I then want to get the, the HDMI digital output for it? Do I want to get um, a CF card reader in there? Or do I want to get a 600 and do all that? If you're starting from there, then what he's done is much more appealing. Much more mm -hmm. appealing. And real hardware, I mean, for functionality-wise, you maybe you maybe get more functionality from emulation than you do from unreliable real hardware. Um, I would say that the times that emulation lets you down are less often than when real hardware lets you down. Um, so a mini or a Raspberry Pi is the way to get most of the way there for a fraction of the cost. And I like what you said earlier on about if it if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck. For me, the the feel of of using it. I mean, I could use my Mister with a USB keyboard. And it's the most accurate way of playing an ST without using an ST. But I would feel more accurate with an ST shell with a, with a, 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 a poorly emulated Raspberry Pi inside. So I think it's how it feels. Um, so I, I would hope this doesn't cause, and I don't really think he means it this way. I think it's just a talking point. Anyone to, to, to rip open their 1200 and chuck out the guts. Um, but it, maybe, maybe we'll get, we'll end up with people building custom um, Amiga Maxis rather than just buying them all from the shops. It's time now for our community question of the week. So let's check out last week's question. Uh, Ravi, do you want to do the honours and read out what the question was? At what point do you cross the line? At what point does collecting become hoarding? Did you consider yourself a collector, but had it pointed out that in fact you are a hoarder? Oh, yeah, all about hoarding, the question of hoarding that um, uh, Dave led a, led a story on last week uh, about the Retro Computer Museum in Leicester. Um, and we talked about uh, all the, um, not struggles, but challenges that they were up against, as indeed many other museums are up against uh, in terms of finding that balance of collecting and hoarding. And that extends into our own lives, our own collections at home and many of our listeners. Uh, and that's reflected in many of the answers. So, um Shall I read the first one? Uh, this was the most upvoted answer. And if you want to participate in our question of the week, of course, head over to reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro, where you can see the questions um, as well as all the other topics that are raised by people. So this first one came from listener Warshi7819. And they say, I guess by definition, a collection is a collection, is a collection regardless of course, if you have a lot of duplicates, then it might be easy to define that as hoarding. Um, but what if you have a lot of collections, even without duplicates? Is that also hoarding? An obsession of getting those full sets of games for a system or several systems, maybe? I mean, we're not getting an answer here. We're getting questions <laughs> to our question. Um, he goes on to say, I don't know. I collect the tape games I had or wanted to have for my C64 slash C128 back in the day. I don't buy games just because they're cheap. I don't buy games I haven't seen before or know nothing about. If you ask my wife, then she'll probably say something like, do you really need all those games? And for sure, she'll probably lean towards that I'm hoarding. Maybe we all hoard. Maybe there is no middle ground. Maybe hoarding is just collecting without a plan. Mm. I like that. I think that, that yeah. yeah. But then again, I, I I can make up a plan on a, with, a, with a second's notice. I can pretend I've got one. <laughs> oh, you can go from hoarding to collecting in. Oh, in I can justify it. I can yeah. do the, the mental gymnastics. <laughs> nice. I like to borrow some of your lines off you, 
Yep. So this is from <laughs> Trills. Uh, for me, the distinction of hoarding arrives when the collection starts infringing on one's ability to live. I love the hobby, but I tend to be very selective when incorporating a new game into my very modest collection. Not only am I uh, am I very limited on space, but I tend to be a purger and often prefer to uh, have as little as possible. I approach collecting as building a sort of library of games that carry some significance, whether that be um, games I deeply enjoy, uh, and will always return to or those titles I want to try or as you know I've experienced more games I tried to make decisions on whether one particular title even if it was enjoyable to experience has enough purpose for future return and then I tried to honestly evaluate and part with games that don't fulfill those criteria I think for others however who have more space or a different approach to collecting the limit could be much more lax uh, but ultimately it comes down to whether one is able to honestly maintain everything and hold it in a reasonable capacity if that isn't possible and interferes with daily life especially with others in a shared living environment it then could start becoming problematic and uh, become more of a hoarding issue it's all about balance and he also nicely says thanks for another great show last week gents so our takeaway from that is um if your hoarding is becoming a problem get a divorce is that, yes. is that what we're saying <laughs> yes then there's no problem <laughs> <laughs> the next one is from colony activist and he says and he's much straight to the point this time I'm just a hoarder. No two ways about it. I've got consoles, games, toys that haven't been looked at, touched, or played with, yet I can't bring myself to divest and sell it to people who would put them on display, play, or share them. Sad face. Sad face. Well, the first step to solving a problem is to admit is admitting you have a problem. So I think that's where Colony Activist is there. We can all learn a lot from them. Um, our question of the week for next week, then. Uh, it's if you could go back and get the band back together, the original team who made a system that you love, and you could ask them to make a new model, like, for example, the MSX3, what would you want them to make? It could be micros, it can be consoles, anything you like. Tell us what you'd like and why. Hmm. Any uh, instinctive answers from Amiga. you guys? Amiga. <laughs> <laughs> that was entirely unpredictable. What about the GX4000 just three years earlier? yeah <laughs> a, a, a new acorn on on the new arm architecture oh, oh that'd be nice that's actually a good answer I, yeah that's Neil? a sensible answer uh well amiga's been taken hasn't it um good uh, a new put it in there twice isn't it democracy no. <laughs> I, I was gonna say sharp <laughs> um a new pc engine even though it got the pcfx follow-up that was a dog so a pc engine two please i'd like that yeah well, we'll be interested to hear your answers over on the subreddit, reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro. Also submit your stories if you'd like us to talk about them. Thank you everyone for listening as always. And uh, we'll see you in the next show. Take care. Bye-bye. Is Ping coming on? It's Ravi. Uh, Ravi's on. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC The Cave, Chris from 005 Agema, and Dave. It was produced by me, Duncan Styles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favourite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on the stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, 
please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you enjoy our show and would like to support it, then please check out the link to our Patreon page in the show notes or description. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.